If time travel existed, I would take this episode's guest back to the time right before my mom died. But if doing that somehow resulted in you, dear listener, never being born, I just wouldn't risk it. I mean it. I I really would take this episode's guest back to the time right before my mom died if I could. And I definitely mean it that I wouldn't risk your existence. So glad you're here. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. I'm your host, Ned Buskirk. What I do think this podcast episode offers is a chance maybe for you, depending on what you've lived through already, I don't know what your relationship is to hospice, but it's possible that we're doing a little bit of time travel forward by giving you this episode. Like having listened to this episode will have you keeping hospice in mind when you need it. Now, that doesn't mean this episode is going to be all about the nitty gritty of hospice and how it works and how people die and things to pay attention to as they do. It's not exactly like that. I like to think about it this way. When I go on to someone else's show, I don't spend that whole time talking at length in detail about the things that our organization offers. What I like to do is just show up in the realest of ways, usually out of whatever I'm living through at the time. And this episode guest does that. And we do talk about hospice enough for you to get that they are smart as hell about what they do. They're passionate about the work they do. And the story of how they ended up in their work, I think, is also important. But all of that combined with Nurse Penny being the kind of person who's in touch with how she is in the world right now and sourcing her experiences. And I think she does this on social media, which is why she has an incredible community of followers. It's a testament to that this is how she is in the world, being real, being vulnerable and talking from how she is in the world right now, living all the things she's living through, going through the work that she does and sourcing that and processing it and somehow giving it back to us. Nurse Penny on this show shows up like that. And I've had people listen to other episodes where we had nurses on and and even people comment like, I want to hear more about hospice. Get to the get to the point. Well, you can research that endlessly, and and I'm going to put some links up in the show notes for you if you really don't know what hospice is, like I didn't when my mom died. I want to give you access to that. So we'll make sure this episode has those kinds of links in the show notes. But mostly, I want to welcome you to listen to this episode with someone who's doing the work with their whole heart and shows up in a conversation with me like I needed at the end of a really intense week. And I felt, I felt actually, I feel like she hospiced me a little bit, the ending, an ending for me. So I hope this conversation gives you that, this compulsion maybe, because of how Nurse Penny communicates and shares and tells her stories and really is visible in all those ways with me in this conversation, that it compels you to find out more about hospice and make sure that you're well-versed if you haven't had to use it already. Penny Smith is a nationally certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse. She has been a hospice nurse for over 17 years and worked in a variety of care settings and roles within hospice, including inpatient, home case management, education, quality, and regulatory. She's also a social media influencer, educating about hospice and normalizing death and dying on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube with over 750,000 followers. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with hospice nurse Penny. They have been studies that say that people who are dying want to talk about it, Um, but often they will avoid the conversation with their family members or they're shut down by their family members. You know, Um, the thing about what, what the thing about being with somebody who's dying and not having had that experience of having hospice there to educate and normalize that dying process is so many people come away from it feeling like it was a terrible death. 
that they witnessed mm. things that happened to their person that were not normal and therefore they must have been horrible and they were suffering and and you were suffering to see it. And I think that's one of the most important things that we do in hospice is to really educate people about what to expect when their mm-hmm. person is dying and to normalize that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a really important um an important thing to have to 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 be able to do for people uh, working in hospice. <laughs> well, I, I said this to hospice nurse Julie, who I know you know and are friends mm-hmm. with. Yes. Um, but but <laughs> I'll say it now already at this early in our our meeting each other, at least here in this conversation. But gosh, I wish I'd known you then. And I feel like that's what's so powerful about your social media presence is that I know if I'd been online, I, it's very likely I would have come across someone like you who would have said at some point, in the years leading up to my mom's death enough for me to like make that mental note, this is an option and it will be hard no matter what, but boy, isn't it so significant? There's people like you out there who care about this work and who can, can show up in these moments. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging you for being that kind of person and also wishing I'd known you back in the early two thousands. I get that a lot. And, and, you know, like you say, it's hard no matter what. It's always going to be sad. I, mm-hmm. I can't take the sadness out of it for anybody. There's going to be grief. You know, there's going to be suffering for those who are left behind because they miss their person. But the one thing that I hope to be able to do is to remove the fear mm-hmm. because I think that just it compounds that grief. It makes it so much worse if you're afraid and you feel like you've just witnessed something with your person that was horrible and tragic. It's tragic enough that your person is, is dead and they're gone. And, mm-hmm. But to also think that, you know, that they were suffering, they were drowning in those secretions that we call the death rattle or that their breathing was, you know, so labored and that that was hurting them somehow. And when really it's, it's not, but I have to tell you about my experience, my recent experience with a, a death situation that mm-hmm. I was completely unprepared for. But I'll let me start. Well, how long now? Yeah. How long? I'm like, how could you not? I'm thinking, well, how is there ever a moment? <laughs> so, yeah, because death, I've been a right? hospice nurse for 18 years. So I've been, I've literally been with thousands of, right. of dying people. Oh. I mean, I've witnessed hundreds of deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I now do hospice quality. I'm a hospice quality manager. So oh, okay. I have, I've been out of the field for a while, but I, I worked in the field long enough to to have a you know very good experience with death and dying. I, I worked in hospice care centers for the first seven years of my hospice nursing career. And mm-hmm. I call that the in-your-face death and dying experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my week started out really interesting. Oh, I actually, yeah. Yeah, tell, tell I actually was in the San Francisco <laughs> airport for a hot minute. Okay. Um, I was asked by Compassion and Choices. I don't know if you're familiar with I that am. organization. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, we're kind of uh, buddies. I love them. And um, they invited me to speak at a an end-of-life symposium in Las Vegas this last week. Um, so I actually did a talk on nursing practice at the end of life. And I talked about how, you know, symptom management is very important, but normalizing death and and the education around what's going to happen is more important. And I talked about my social media and it was really great. It was a great experience. I I connected with people. It was fantastic. I was on top of the world. Mm -hmm. And then I I live in Eastern Washington. And so uh, I flew into um, a little airport north of Seattle in Western Washington. And to get back from Western Washington, and I go back and forth all the time because my family, my grandkids, they live in Western Washington. I have to go over Mountain Pass. So I was going over Stevens Pass. It was snowing, you know, it was snow on the road. I'm always very careful when I'm driving because I had a spin out on a mountain pass a few years ago and it freaked me out. So I'm very, very cautious. I'm a cautious driver. Mm -hmm. I was just coming off the mountain and the the road had started to clear up, but there were still patches of snow and ice on it. I came around a corner and a man was standing out in the middle of the road, waving his arms at me to slow down. Uh, I was able to slow down without skidding, without spinning out because I was already going slow enough, but I could see that there was a car accident. Mm. So I got out of my car and the first thing I said was, does anybody have flares? Because I was like, people are going to keep coming around that corner and this situation is going to be worse. Nobody had flares. Mm. Uh, I I was the second on scene. Uh, The next thing was, 
my my brain kicked in like is anybody hurt mm. the cars didn't look i didn't think they looked that that bad mm-hmm. uh, but somebody said we've already called 911 ems is on the way i walked over to the first car and there was a woman in the back seat with a dog on her lap and her eyes were closed and she looked to be you know in and out of dazed maybe in and out of consciousness there was a woman driving and she also was in and out of consciousness and there was a man in the passenger seat next to her that i now know was 79 and i knew he was probably in his 70s and he was actively dying he was actively dying how how did you know that because i know what an actively dying person looks like cuz i've <laughs> seen it thousands of <laughs> tell me how <laughs> tell me how he was slumped over mm-hmm. towards the driver's side his mm-hmm. color was off it was dusky and yellow and and it was off and he was agonal breathing mm-hmm. which means gasping mm-hmm. he was completely unresponsive his eyes were closed at first and then he did open them and they were partially open and he had what we call the death stare where mm-hmm. they're not nobody's home like you can see mm-hmm. that they're not fixed on anything and i knew i knew he was actively dying and i was i and the woman in the driver's seat was minimally responsive and i said to her are are you are you hurting and she said or i said are you in pain i don't even remember what i said are you okay yeah. are you in pain she said my back hurts and i said okay ems is coming they're they're on their way they'll be here soon and then i went over to the next car and there was a man in the driver's seat and and there was nobody else and i later on i found his wife was walking around and she was okay but he was also you know his eyes were closed and he said i said are you okay and he said i can't see anything mm. his eyes were closed mm-hmm. and and i didn't even think about this for hours later mm-hmm. like i could have said to him your eyes are closed <laughs> that's why you can't see anything <laughs> oh but God. i am not kidding you i mm. i didn't know what to do i talked to the other people that were there they finally took the dog out of the the dog was okay so amazingly this dog wasn't even kenneled mm. or anything it was a little I call them kick dogs. You know, they're like little dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy was holding the dog and the dog was calm. The dog was fine. EMS arrived very, very quickly. Um, and it was just so surreal. And, and they ended up, they got the two women out. I heard the woman in the back seat screaming at her back hurt. There was no blood anywhere. There was no blood. And the people that were not dying, the, you know, the man was obviously dying. The people that were not dying were, they looked like they were asleep. They just looked mm-hmm. like they were asleep. Mm-hmm. It was so surreal. I mean, I've never mm-hmm. seen anything like this. And they get the two women out. Then they get the man that's in the other car out. Uh, I, I spoke to his wife a little bit. They were going on their way to go skiing. She talked about what happened in the accident. The other car came around the corner too fast. They hit it. Um, and then they had to use the jaws of life to get the man that was dying out. And they I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. They cut this the top off the car and they like folded it over Wow! like a hot dog bun or something opening oh up there. And then they got in the car and they dragged him out and they landed a helicopter on the intersection down the road and they took him away and he died. He did die. And so did the woman in the, in the back seat who I didn't think was going to die. She was oh still screaming when they, I found out later that they, they did both die, but mm. I had another five hours to drive home after that. And oh, I pain. processed the whole way. Like, what is wrong with me? What, why couldn't I do anything? Mm. <laughs> and I thought, well, if I had my, my vital equipment with me, would that have helped? No, it doesn't help for me to check their vitals. As a hospice nurse, I know yeah. if I check the vitals for somebody, I'm doing it because I want to know what am I going to do with that information. Mm. Now, I could have given that information to EMS when they arrived, but they're going to check the vitals anyway. Right. Right. Uh, I could have checked, are they alert and oriented? Then I could tell them, you know, who is, who's alert and oriented, who's not, so that they could know who to go to first. But again, you know, they figured that out in seconds. I heard somebody go, there's three yellows and one red. And mm. I knew what that meant. Mm. So they, they assessed that very quickly. And well, then what, in well, this- Well, real quick, I, you know, what does that mean? What is that? What is three yellows and one red mean? So they're triaging them and they're basically saying there are three that are in serious condition and one that is in I critical see. condition. Yep. And so when you're in a triage situation, they're always going to take the ones who are 
more likely to survive, which is why they got the women out first I and then see. the other man. And they took their time out. They didn't take their time, but yeah. they had to take time because they yeah. had to disassemble the car to get the man out. But mm. he was not their priority because there were other people there that were more, more likely to live. So what kills me is why didn't I tell the woman or any of them, but I, I keep thinking about the woman who said my back hurts. And I keep thinking, what could I have done? I could have said, my name is Penny. I am with you. Mm-hmm. You are not alone. Now, see, you said you were going to cry. and Now it's going to be me that's going to cry because I kept thinking to myself, why didn't I say that to her? You are not alone. And I just wandered around, you know, like not knowing what to do. And I'm a mm. hospice nurse and I, and it's just mind boggling to me that I couldn't think of even saying to her, you are not alone. I am mm. with you. And it, and it, it's heartbreaking to look back on that situation. And, you know, I am on social media. So of course I, one of the first things I did was pull over to the side of the road after I was on my way again, because I couldn't even drive. I was still just like yeah. processing all this. And I posted a video about it and said, you know, why didn't I do anything? And and so many people responded and said, because you're, <laughs> you were in a trauma situation mm-hmm. and mm. this was traumatic for you. Mm. You know, one of the things I processed was the whole day and how I, I got up at a certain time. I was going to stop at a Starbucks drive-through, but I missed it. So I stopped at a Safeway and went in there, Starbucks instead. But I first went in the produce department and it's yeah, like that whole right. mm-hmm. I could have been in that accident, but, Mm -hmm. you know, for some reason, you know, I decided to do this instead and I wasn't there. And so I, you know, so one of the, one of the people who follow me, it's called stitching on, on social media where, or on TikTok, where you take a clip from somebody's video and then you add to it. And she stitched my video and she said, I want to tell you a story. I was a nursing student on a bus full of nurses and we came across Oh my God. An accident that was a fatality accident. There were people who were extremely injured, seriously injured. And she said, none of those nurses knew what to do in the moment. And so, you know, I I feel like a lot of people have given me grace about this and said, of course, you didn't know what to do because you weren't a nurse. You were, in fact, I'm going to tell you, hospice nurse Julie and I are very, very good friends. And and we talk almost daily. And she was the first person who, and we send voice texts to each other on our, our phones. And I, I reached out to her first. She was the first person I reached out to and said, Oh my God, I can't believe this. What did I, and I just kept going on and on with these vomiting, all this processing to her. Mm-hmm. And she said, you were a bystander too. Cause I was like, the other bystanders were yeah. there. And, and she said, you were a bystander too. You were not a nurse there. You were a bystander. Mm. And I keep, but I kept telling myself, okay, it's one thing to not think about what I could have done as a nurse, but how come I couldn't have thought about what to do as a human? Sure. Yeah. I mean, almost a couple things I want to say. I'm definitely like snotty and blowing my, (laughs) blowing my nose. (laughs) I just am so just loving how, you know, immediately we've dropped in and thank you for sharing that. What I want. (laughs) What I want to acknowledge is I almost wonder if it, it's harder for you because of the work you do. In a mo- it was harder for you in a moment like that because then it's like you are both human being and nurse. And like for me, I just would show up and I wouldn't even have any of the the like what is what is the jump in the work role. And and so just wanting to acknowledge how much it is for you in particular to have been in that context, because you're doing almost simultaneously two identities or trying to and and how much that that must have been. Um, it sounds like, you know, and well, go, the, go shocking, ahead. the shocking thing for me is seeing a person dying who wasn't supposed to be dying. This wasn't somebody on hospice. This wasn't my patient. This right, is not somebody right. dying from a disease, a natural death. We call a natural death. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I knew. That makes sense. I knew he was dying. And and one of the bystanders, you know, he came up to me and I said, he's dying. He's dying. And, and the guy, he looked at me and then he kind of just turned around and walked away. And I thought... Oh, he he can't he can't hear this. He doesn't want to know this, yeah, you know. Like, yeah, and, yeah. and I was like processing out loud, like <laughs> that guy's dying right mm. now. Like, I, oh my god, mm-hmm. I can't I can't believe it. And no blood, like. Mm-hmm. 
I, you know, let's see. I just want, cause there's a couple ways I want to move forward, but I want to just give our, give ourselves <laughs> a moment to be like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. um, how much that was for you. And really the honor, it feels like I, like I said, uh, my sense for you with your work online, especially sharing of yourself on social media, what a gift to have the community immediately reflect back to you, especially other nurses like Julie, here's, here's what you should remember about what happened to you, you know, being in that context. Like I'm really feeling that. And, and, and in a way it's another measurement for the significance for this online presence. Um, because I'm also getting right now the like week I've had, I told you what I did all week, but I didn't tell you like how hard in all the little ways, well, big ways I'd say almost everything I described to you is. And of course it's, it's, understood already. Well, of course it's hard. Like these things are hard. It's hard work. It's intense, intense feelings, intense context. But this week in particular has you, has me in that. What am I doing by the way? Not a mental, not a mental health professional, not a medical professional like you. So then there's this little bit of that insecurity voice that says you're in this work somehow after over 10 years and no schooling or academia or licensing or certification really backs you. And then to hear you share a moment of your week where you get thrust into a context where all that stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. And so then it's the very real like learning and offering you're giving us that, you know, that let's just stay with the death and dying that these things keep teaching us no matter how many decades like you have been in this, you're, you're still going to have the moment when the thing is somehow maybe teaching you, but, but also and I don't know what that teaching is. And that's kind of where I want to go next. I want to say like how often over the years do you have moments where, you know, you're still getting taught something or still getting reminded of something, you know, like when you processed all that, what is it really that you're carrying now out of that experience that like, I'm sure we both maybe could connect in this way. It's like, how, how did, how hard this week go? How is it informing me continuing to do this work? You know, mm-hmm. does that make sense as a yeah. next, next kind of direction? Of- yeah. Yeah. Well, and I can back it up even further because I was a hospice nurse for five years when my dad died. Mm. And when the hospice nurse or the hospice liaison came down to talk to us about him going on mm. hospice, I may as well have never worked in hospice my whole entire right. life. Wow. Yeah. Right. So to your point, there's always more to, to learn, mm-hmm. you know, there's always more to learn about death and dying. My takeaway from this accident was um, that I, I, I feel I felt like uh, I, I need I needed to be more prepared. I mean, this sounds really weird because it, it was such a human experience, you know. And it's like I want to be all oh, I, I I need to look to my higher power, or whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my my thought was. I want to use this to teach others because I think that's what I'm always thinking about is how can I share my wisdom and my knowledge? That that is something that's really important to me. And Mm -hmm. believe it or not, what I thought about was I am going to go to the auto parts store and I'm going to buy flares and I'm going to buy Mm -hmm. a little Mm -hmm. fire extinguisher, Mm -hmm. portable fire extinguisher. And I'm going to, because I had a blanket in my car and I didn't even think to get the blanket out for any of them. You know, it's like, there were things. And, and so I'm going to put a kit together and, mm-hmm. and what, and I'm going to make a video about, Hey, if you're traveling, you know, and you come across an accident, these are the things that you can do. This yeah. is my, le- these are my lessons learned. That's right. And, and that's how I always kind of try to look at these experiences is what can I do with this information, with this experience that's going to help others? Yeah. I would say, you know, to bring it back to something you shared earlier, because I wanted to say like, well, how do you help people not be afraid? Mm -hmm. And, and, and that is my question, but it it feels like you're kind of describing how, Mm -hmm. like, here's how to prepare. Like if, if if anything, maybe we can't take all the fear away because certainly these things, especially when someone we love is dying, fear maybe can't be removed entirely. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a way to soften or prepare ourselves, brace ourselves. um, And that's part of your work is letting people do that. And so then no surprise, maybe the theme of all the times over the last 20 years is that 
okay, I'm going to make meaning out of I went how I went through this. However much I'm like, I wish it had gone this way or I, gosh, I didn't think to do that. Mm-hmm. That in, emphasizes the, okay, well now I know. And now I want to make sure other people know. And that right. helps for the fear because so much of the fear is like, I don't know. And I don't know what to do. Yes. Yes. And I have people that reach out to me all the time, all the time. They send me, um, emails and they send me, you know, messages, DMs or comments where they say, I was just able to be with my grandmother and I was able to tell my family about what was happening and that that was normal. Mm. And, you know, and part of it is Mm -hmm. if you can get over the fear of seeing your person looking like they don't normally look Mm -hmm. and you know, they're dying, you're able to be present with them. Yeah. Yeah. You're able to be present with them because some people are like, I can't go in there. They doesn't look like him anymore. That, and so I try to, you know, reaffirm that that, that is still your person. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're making funny noises. Yes, they look different, but that's your person. Yeah. And you, you can be with them if you know that these things are normal. It's a normal part of the dying process. And just to touch on what you said about how do you prepare people so they're not afraid. There are really normal signs to the dying process, like the eyes being open, like the mouth hanging open, Mm -hmm. like the neck being hyperextended, like them reaching into the air or picking Mm -hmm. at their clothes, Mm -hmm. like the death rattle, like a fever, like all of these things that are a normal part of the dying process. And some people will say, yes, I knew the death rattle was normal. It was still disturbing to hear, Mm -hmm. but at least I knew they weren't going to drown in those secretions, you know? Um, so, so that's how you can kind of prepare people and, and remove that element of fear by letting them, them know that. Yeah. And, and maybe that was part of like, not to belabor this car accident thing, but part of my issue was, you know, seeing somebody, I, I really think, cause I, and I actually already said this and I've thought it a million times, seeing somebody dying that wasn't supposed to be dying, seeing somebody mm-hmm. dying from a traumatic injury. And people ask me all the time, like when I talk about visioning, people vision at the end of life. They they speak metaphorically about dying. Like they'll say, I'm going home or I'm going mm-hmm. on a trip. You mm-hmm. know, people ask, do they know they're dying? Yeah, they know, we know we're, we're, now we're dying. We live in our mm-hmm. bodies. Barbara Carnes, who's a hospice pioneer and written a million books yeah, says, know, you know, yeah. we live in our bodies. We know when we're dying. And I believe that. I believe our people know when they're dying. And people ask me, well, what about if they die suddenly? Or what if they die in a traumatic, you know, situation? And I'm always like, I don't know, because (laughs) those people aren't on hospice. They're they're dying somewhere else. Uh, And that's what this was. And, And seeing somebody who's dying from a traumatic injury probably internal. I'm going to, I'm guessing it had to be internal injuries or maybe he had a a heart attack. Um, Mm -hmm. Seeing him going through that same dying process was traumatic, but in a way, I think as I get move further away from this, this happened two days ago. um, Oh my gosh, Penny. Yeah. I'm going to probably start to feel like, okay, now I know if somebody is in an accident and they don't die right away. They are going through this dying process. It's the same type of dying process as somebody who's dying a natural death. everybody it's podcast producer nick jana um i'm just sitting here in the studio all alone with the lights off and this microphone is here and ned's not here which i think gives me oh jeez <laughs> <laughs> hey nick i've been in here every day uh-huh. day and night alone i'm oh. so glad someone else is here okay hi I- i'm concerned about your family yeah me too <laughs> so what are you up to? What are you up to? What you doing? At, what what brings you into the studio, Nick Jana? 
Well, you told me that we reached a benchmark with uh, Spotify reviews of the podcast. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I thought maybe we could have a frank and honest discussion about that. I appreciate that. Um, so glad you brought it up. We did. I set a little goal for us this week of trying to hit 100 reviews and ratings on Spotify. And we we hit it in just a couple days. And I want to say something about it. I want to thank everybody that did like the podcast uh, and rate it well. We, we've held strong with our 5.0 average. And um, can we bump that up a little? I don't, we can't, uh, my son wishes that we could, we could get it to six, but I think 5.0 might be the cap. We'll see. But what I want to say is this isn't an option to just go into Spotify and rate it unless you've listened to the show. And to mm. be honest, while I'm grateful people rated it and I'm glad mm -hmm. we reached our goal, I'm more present to the fact that these are listeners, that we mm. encourage people that have listened to the show. Because listen, I tried to do it once uh, to do like a rating uh, podcast and I hadn't listened to it. It was just in support of someone's yeah. show and it wouldn't let you. It says you have to listen. And so I just want to say thanks to the people that rated it for doing it, I think genuinely from a place of being listeners already and knowing that our social media communities connected to us there and that they're listening. And so that feels really good. And I feel like while Glennon Doyle's podcast we can do hard things you know got 15,000 ratings before it even released its first episode <laughs> 100 feels like small in comparison but it's a highly competitive podcast market out there we're not famous already married to a soccer player you know however our relationship is precious yours and mine it's not quite it's not quite as uh potent as theirs, I guess. I'm not successful enough at soccer for you. Is that what you're saying? I'm hoping it could be a new a new endeavor to help the podcast. Do you know that comparison is the thief of joy? Okay. I appreciate that. M message received. So I, this is a celebration. Thank you all for rating and helping us hit our, our hundred reviews on Spotify. It means a lot and it, it helps our visibility and it lets people know that we clearly matter to a community of human beings that care about us. So speaking of which, uh, we talk about our Patreon supporters and I wanted to share some words from a couple patrons that told me why they decided to support us through Patreon. Oh, great. Can I share some of these words with you, Nick? Please. Okay, this is from Jonah Newell. They said, I've been close to death several times in my life after being born, but also after going to a, through a severe health crisis. And my mom has been close to death several times while raising me and my twin sister. So I have come to appreciate talking openly about grief and death because denying the existence of both is not helpful. My mortality has stared me in the face several times. And she listened to the episode of Sophie Strand and appreciated it so much because of that chronic illness experience. And uh, that's from Jonah Noel. I got one more for you. This is from Andy. Andy says, I've been searching for real talk and guidance about grief since my husband died 82 days ago. I'm so grateful for your raw, real, hard, tearful discussions. It is saving me oh. keeping me buoyant thank you keep it up please and thank you so what do you have to say about that nick that's so sweet that's so good to hear what would you say to encourage people to support us on patreon or rate and review us through apple Podcasts, spotify or whatever podcast app they use well the good thing about us being a humbly sized podcast is that we see each of the ratings and it really matters to us like any words that you do say are actually read by us and um i don't know it matters it doesn't just go into some big uh, hopper full of thousands of letters and we cackle at them as it burns and we counter money that's not what happens <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's that's great. That's not what happens, everybody. We do get all your little stars. We see them pop through. We see your words on Apple Podcast. We see you come through when you add yourself as a patron at patreon.com forward slash YG2D. And I would add, inspired by Nick share, that we want to create a hopper of letters. So if you ever feel like writing a handwritten letter that 
that you'd give us permission maybe to read on the show, you can send any letters to YG2D. That's our nonprofit. We're a 501c3 at P.O. Box 720040, San Francisco, California, 94172. You know, my mom, I don't know. I just feel like there was a way she both didn't talk about it and so then wasn't really in touch with its happening. I mean, really, at at all, there was no sign that I felt that. In fact, in those last few hours I described you in the hospital, she had a moment where it was possible to put her on life support. And the doctor had already told my sister and I in another room that it wasn't, it was just gonna, it's just gonna like put off the inevitable. And so when we went in that room, it was a huge moment and I'm, I'm good with this and I've done the healing and, and cause there was a lot of shame and guilt. This is how I responded to my mom who hadn't been talking for a week. It felt like, and still remember like the silence of her dying. But she said in those last hours, what do you think when this talk of life support came up and I didn't have anything to say, I was just crying. And so then we didn't do life support and she died. But that, you know, even in those last moments, it felt like my mom was out of touch with what was occurring. You know, oh, I, I know a that's a lot to put. Okay, that. good. I give have it a to different me. take on that. And <laughs> I also want to say, I, I love what you just said, the silence of her dying, the mm-hmm. silence of her dying. Uh, wow. That was a powerful statement. Um, moms like to protect their kids. Yeah. She wasn't in denial. She was asking for your permission. I mean, that's what I think. I I don't think that she, when she said, what do you think? Her consideration was for, for you. It wasn't about, I don't, I mean, I wasn't there and and I'm just purely, um, you know, this is just my, my perspective being with dying people is that she knew she was dying. Of course she knew she was dying and she was that close to death. Mm. And people are going to be in denial at first because uh, even if they know, I think it's more about shock to know that you're dying, that you're told that you're, I would be, if somebody said, by the way, you're terminally ill and you're going to go on hospice, my first reaction would be, well, my first reaction would be, fuck, and hopefully you can bleep me <laughs> keep, out if we're, that's No, not, we're keeping it in. That, not unless, your, you want it, unless you want <laughs> me to bleep it out. No, okay. I, I drop it frequently on my, my TikTok. I've been told I'm not a good nurse because I have bad language. You cuss, so. <laughs> you cuss too much. <laughs> yes. No, it's great. It, it's good here. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that, that's how the, you would respond. Yeah. Funny thing, too, one day I uh, somebody somebody commented on my, my video that I shouldn't say fuck because it's not professional. I'm a nurse. And I made a response video and said, this is TikTok. Uh, I'm not at the bedside. I'm not your nurse. And somebody replied and said, I want a hospice nurse. Who's going to say fuck, because if I find out I'm dying, I certainly am going to be saying it. (laughs) Me too. too. But you know, so uh, people ask me all the time, like, is anybody ever really afraid to die? And honestly, I have, Uh, And I've talked to so many other medical professionals who say the same thing or hospice, hospice professionals, hospice, social workers, hospice chaplains, hospice nurses. At the end, when somebody's dying, there's acceptance. Uh, Many times they're ready. Mm -hmm. They know they're done. They're tired. They're ready to go. There's acceptance. There's no denial. I've only had one experience with one patient who was struggling and I could tell he was fearful. And and then even at the very end for him, he finally just released. He let go and he looked up at the ceiling and and his just peace washed over him. And then he he died Mm -hmm. and it was peaceful. Mm -hmm. But people know. And honestly, you know, I, a lot of, a lot of people will, will also say I stepped out for five minutes and my mom died when I wasn't in the room or my dad died or whoever, you know, and I wasn't there. (laughs) We know working in Mm -hmm. hospice that people tend to have or seem to have some control over when they let go. And so often it's mothers, moms who don't want their kids to see them taking their last breaths. Yeah. And, and again, I just want to reiterate, I honestly think your mom was not in denial about the fact that she was dying. Yeah. She was asking your permission. Yeah. 
what do you think? Because you know what? If you would have said, yes, you should do the life support, she would have done it 100%. Mm-hmm. And she knew she was dying. Yeah. So in a way, your your inability to speak, your response to her, let her go peacefully. Because you didn't say to her, you need to go on life support. I want you to live longer. You 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 saved her from suffering from lingering longer and you saved yourself and your sister from having to make the decision to take the life support off. And let me tell you, it's way harder Mm. to say, remove it than it is to say, don't put it on in the first place. Oh man. Okay. Uh, Are you ever clamped? Well, I'm crying a great deal and I'm like muting myself and cause I'm just so, I, I got the chills and just well, I having, hope the crying is cathartic. I yeah, mean, I hope is. that's I just, helpful to it you. Is, yeah. I mean, I'm both like needing it at the end of the week, but also I don't think I know for sure I've never been offered that, what you just gave me. And it's similarly to kind of the theme we're talking about, right? This endless learning from making room for death and dying to have my version of maybe like if I can connect this, this car accident a couple of days ago for you, but that how in the world, you know, even saying in this conversation with you, like I've healed, I'm, you know, I moved on from the shame and guilt <laughs> and then still get out of this conversation being with this, you know, my mom's death to get more relief, you know, and more healing and more, um, yeah, I think that's it. And so I just, wow. Yeah. I've never had it put that way. And I'm just feeling, it feels it like the chills especially feels like, Oh yep. That's a truth. You know, she's right. You're right. Well, you know, we don't ever really heal from grief. Mm. I mean, grief never mm. goes away and it's, it's not linear, uh, you know, and it never goes away. We just learn to live with it. And yeah. so always, forever, for the rest of our lives, you know, there are going to be things that come up for us around a person's loss. And one of the things you said earlier was when your mother-in-law died and you spoke at that event, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you weren't speaking about your mother-in-law anymore. You were speaking about your mom because yeah. you have, and, and you know, when we talk about childhood grief, what's, and I'm no grief expert. I just know what I read and I know, you know, yeah, from my work. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they say that children, first of all, we should be honest with them about what's happening because my social worker that I used to work with would say that it's like they're walking around with little antennas on their head and they pick up on everything. And so mm-hmm. telling yeah, a child, right. never tell a kid, and this was told to me and I suffered great death anxiety because of it. Never tell a kid that somebody died, somebody dying means they went to sleep, went to sleep and they're not going to wake up anymore. Yeah, right. You know, that's really yeah. bad. You have to be honest with children about death. And of course it has to be age appropriate, depending on what they are able to understand based on their growth and development at that time. But what happens with a kid is that as they grow and they learn more and their development stage changes, they can re-grieve Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. if you right. look back, like at I'm new, 60. At new stages of their life. Yeah. Yes. At new maturities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm 60. I look back to when I was 26 and I was a baby mm-hmm. at 26. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, because yes, we're always yes. growing. Right. And so mm-hmm. it makes sense that as you grow and you learn more, you get more wisdom, you, you are going to re-grieve, mm-hmm. you know, those people. You're right. I remember when my dad died, um, my, uh, it was shocking. So my only experience, I did tell you, I had death anxiety. My grandfather died when I was a child. I didn't know him. My mom was from Canada. My dad was from Texas. I was not close. We lived in Washington state. I was not close to any of my, my, um, grandparents. And my mom told me that my, my grandfather had gone to sleep. You know, that's what death is. In fact, I remember one night I was crying. I couldn't sleep. And I walked out to my mom and I was probably like seven years old. And I said, I can't sleep because I'm 
scared about thinking about you dying. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, I'm not going to die. I just go to, go to bed and oh. think, about, think, of, think about something nice like flowers. <laughs> yeah. So then a few minutes later, I come back out to her and I'm like, when I think about flowers, it makes me think about graveyards. And when I think about graveyards, it makes me worry about you dying. Mm, You know, and she was just like, go activate. Yeah. (laughs) I I tell you, Penny, I'm, I often share my version of that, you know, this, this, this coming down to mom and, and also the similar feeling of this, we're not going to talk about that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it and it creates death anxiety and mm-hmm. and so this is something I learned about that I didn't know. So I had death anxiety very very bad when I was in my 30s. I would cry. I was it was crippling for me. Mm-hmm. I had a crippling fear of death. Mm-hmm. And um I realized when I came on social media how many people yeah. death anxiety impacts. Mhm. Uh-huh. How many people are affected by it? And one of the reasons is because we don't talk about it. Yeah. So going back to like what you were talking about earlier in our, in our society, we don't talk about it. We're in such denial about something that is a very part of human existence that nobody gets out of here alive and yet nobody wants to talk about it. And we use euphemisms like passed away, gone yeah. to heaven, celestial discharge, yeah, like lost, right. expired. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, let's just call it what it is because it's going to happen to all of us in the end. And and if we can acknowledge that and we can accept that, and, and one of the things I say all the time is you don't have to like it, but you have to accept it because mm. it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And once you can get to that place of acceptance, then you can just put, a, put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to keep thinking about this because it, it doesn't help me to think about this. It's inevitable. It will happen. And I know that, and I don't like it, but I don't have to keep perseverating on it, which is just going to feed my anxiety. Well, and that has really helped me. That's great. And I feel like even better is you're displaying, (laughs) you're actively displaying it because you knew what needed to be talked about with us that would be most worthwhile is this thing that you just went through two days ago. And to be the kind of person who you're not going to shy away from it, you're also going to be visible, but that that gives us the gift of being in it with you, but also reminding us like, this is a version of what you're telling us right now. Like you saying this happened two days ago. Here's what I'm still working out. Here's what I figured out already. Here's what I've taken away from it already. Here's what I'm still like, can't believe happened. And just to be in your life in a way that, that is a version, an invitation of this is how it's this simple. It's like make room, let yourself be with it. And I think most commonly really feeling it this week, you know, because we don't get a lot of that early, I think in our culture, especially as kids, we hit these moments in life where it just kind of hits us like a ton of bricks, you know, and it's, it's too much. Yeah. And I feel like the, the, the work you do as a version of the many years, the many, you know, countless times of saying yes to, okay, let's make room for this now. Okay, let's make room for this now. And not denying it and not repressing it and knowing that our capacity for holding this stuff. And so then I think more and more acceptance and maybe less and less anxiety is our familiarity with this stuff that's quote unquote too much. So often we feel it's too much to be with. Either I can't handle it or you can't handle what I got, you know? Well, I think that's part of it too. Uh, If you're an adult and you can't cope with the death of a person how are you going to be able to help your children? That's right. You know, how are you going to be able to help them cope if you can't even cope yourself? And maybe that's what my mom was going through. I mean, mm. I, I recently talked to my mom about my grandfather's death and and she felt so bad that at the end of his life, he had to be fed. In fact, what we talked about was- He had to be fed? Yeah, he had to be she fed. Bad, yeah. I mean, that happens a lot, all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we can, we keep people with dementia alive in nursing homes for decades like by feeding them, you know, and that's actually what started the conversation with my mom is I just recently found out that there's a um, advanced directive for dementia and it's got things in there. Like if you cannot be fed, do you want to be fed? Oh, wow. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I talked to my mom because my mom's always had a real fear of, of getting dementia. She's 83. And uh, she's sharp as a tack. And, yeah. But her sister, who was 10 years older and died 
a couple of years ago when she was 91 ha- was getting dementia and my mom's neighbor now has dementia. And so my mom's always had this fear around dementia and she's always said, just drop me off in the mountains and let me go. I won't know. And I said, <laughs> I will know. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. It is wild. But what, yeah. but what I will do is I won't put you in a nursing home and mm. I won't feed you if you can't feed yourself, if mm-hmm. that's what you want. And yeah, she said, okay. yes, I don't want to be fed if I cannot feed myself. And I say the same thing. I love to eat. And if I can't pick the spoon up and put the food in my own mouth, it's let time me to let me go. Here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Don't, so- don't puree my food down into <laughs> liquid and, and, and treat me like a baby and that's say, right. open up the hanger. Here comes the airplane and mm-hmm. spoon it into me. Yeah. You know, and, and the, we have so many people in nursing homes who are kept alive like that, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and I'm sure had they had they ever had a discussion about that or had the presence of mind to even know that that could be a possibility earlier on, they most likely I think most people would choose not to have that kind of an undignified ending. Right. I want to just stick with that for just one second and that just to highlight that, you know, I'm feeling how valuable this conversation is in so many ways, but especially a moment, maybe not especially, but also a moment like this where it's okay. I just want to be really clear. So essentially you go into your advanced directive and you add the language that says, if I get diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's, let's say whatever it is, uh, and I'm not able to eat, feed myself. And it, and so then, you know, I know there's probably fish, official medical language for all these things, but it's like that. It's adding a line in your advanced directive that says, if this, then, you know, let me, let me go, you know, like just, I stop eating. Right. I mean, that's how you could put that in your living. will. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of the five wishes addresses that five wishes is a really fantastic, um, little booklet that has all kinds of advanced directives in it. And it's actually legal, like in 48 states. Okay. And what's it called again? I'll make sure to link it up in the show notes. Five wishes. Yeah. Fivewishes.org. And it has questions. And I can't remember if it specifically talks about being fed, but it it definitely talks about tube feeding, but it it even talks about things like I want to be cared for with, um, by people who are joyful or, you know, t- mm-hmm. stuff like that. And you could write things <laughs> oh, wow. into it yeah. or like, I want prayer at the bedside. And oh my gosh. It's yeah, a really great, wonderful. like, and even if it's not legal in your state, it can really guide, you know, your, your family and to know what you want. So making sure that your people know what you want. That's another thing I really try to emphasize often, uh, in my, um, in my social media um, mm-hmm. content is that people have to sometimes make decisions for you without even knowing what you want. And that's why we really need to get this conversation around death going uh, yeah. because, and it's easier to do it if you're not dying, you know, <laughs> it's easier for me to yeah. fill out yeah. what I want when I'm so, dying, if totally. I'm not dying, cause totally. I don't have to be, you know, like I'm not worrying about, Mm-hmm. For one thing, if I'm dying, I don't want to be wasting time doing a bunch of things like that. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be on a cruise. I want to be with my family. <laughs> yeah. you know? Do you have you know? all this stuff done, Penny? I, I have my five wishes filled out. Yes, yeah. I do. Okay, Absolutely. Cool. Now, mm-hmm. I haven't prepaid for any funeral or anything like yeah. that, um, but I've already um, filled out my five wishes. I've already told my, and I do have to change my five wishes because I did want cremation and since the time that I yeah. filled my five wishes out, terramation is legal okay. in my state. And yeah. I, I really want to be composted. That's like, I'm a gardener. I love Hell to garden. Yeah. That's so great. That's compost wonderful. me and, you know, feed me to the vegetables, whatever, grow That's a tree right. in me. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I used to tell my kid, my, so my daughters were teenagers when I started working in hospice and we'd be mm-hmm. driving in the car and a song would come on the radio and I'd say, oh, if, you know, someday if I'm dying, I want to hear this song. Like, this mm. is my playlist. What song? Well, there's lots of them. Like, um, <laughs> Spirits Having Flown by the Bee Gees is one. Mm. Uh, uh, and you probably don't even know who this is, but the Partridge Family was Come this. on. I don't know why everybody's like, you're too young. I know. I definitely know where the Partridge Family is. <laughs> I am a Partridge Family geek. I love all the music. That's it was, amazing. You know, studio musicians and David Cassidy. And there's a song yeah. called On the Road. And that's mm-hmm. one, you know, mm-hmm. and I've got like, I have even, believe it or not, and I just did this recently. 
I've got to redo it because I was laying in bed one day uh, a couple weeks ago and I made a TikTok that starts with, if you're seeing this TikTok, I am dead. Mm. And um, my my oldest daughter is my TikTok legacy person. Mm-hmm. My son is my Facebook legacy person. Mm-hmm. And my other daughter is my Instagram legacy person. Mm. And, and now I have to designate a YouTube legacy person uh-huh. because I, I have a YouTube channel too. But their instructions are you need to let people know, you know, because, you know, you're lucky if you know you're dying and you get to be on hospice and die mm. a natural death. Mm-hmm. But you could absolutely die just like that man and that woman that's did right. a few days ago. Yeah, that's right. Completely unprepared. And then your family is like, oh my God, what do we do? Or worse, because trying to decide what to disp- how to dispose of a body or what kind of funeral you want, that really isn't to me that big of a deal because the funeral is not for the person who's dead. It's for the family. So they can do what they want. Mm-hmm. But trying to decide what to do with the people who are critically injured and on life support and not expected to live. What then? How do you make those decisions? Do they want to be tube fed? Do they not? Do they want to be intubated? Do they not? How do we make those decisions if we've never had that discussion? to Nurse Penny. Just like I said already, the kind of conversation I needed right when I needed it. And you can follow Nurse Penny with the handle at Hospice Nurse Penny on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. I highly encourage it. She's fun as heck also. Very funny, great sense of humor, but also talking about stuff that's deeply meaningful. So go find her on all those social media accounts. Nick Jana. Hey, oh, um, Nick, I want to talk to you about some yeah. two things that connect personally, how you feel about caregiving in your own life when you have to take care of others and how it might connect to nurse Penny and how she is showing up in the world or how she shared on the show. Anything to, to connect? Um, I just heard somebody talking today about like studies coming out about the disaffected uh, emotional state of teens in the country today, like of how high it is and how just, I don't know if the word hopeless was used, but just like, uh, uh, like just really sad. A lot of teenagers are in this country. And on this particular discussion, they were talking about like, well, we don't really know why it is because like jobs are doing fine and the inflation's not so bad. You know, it's just like all these factors that I'm like, was that really something you heard where someone was talking about that issue? Yeah. Like, wow, why are they bummed? Cause these things are going okay. Yeah. Um, talking about it, like it's this mystery, you know, and I was listening to it and thinking like, I can think of so many reasons why I'd be so despairing as a teen, you know, um, I, I wouldn't need to list all of those, but like, one of them being like, just listen to all our episodes. <laughs> one of them being, you know, just like uh, things like healthy economies don't necessarily lead to a person having a role in the world, like like yeah. feeling like they matter and that they're needed. And uh, my impression is that the most common thing in my life that I think in other people's lives, like when you're feeling despair, it's feeling like I don't matter. Like it doesn't matter that I'm here. And um, something about caregiving, like just little moments of it, of, um, mm. you know, a loved one uh, ha- having a surgery or being sick or something, even, you know, child uh, rearing as well, just picking someone up from school because they can't drive yet. You know, <laughs> like yeah. these little things, like it's so easy to convince yourself in your own head. I have nothing to offer the world. Like I'm, I'm useless. I'm redundant. You know, like I'm, 
I'm a guitar player, but like there's a million other guitar players. You know, I'm a writer, but I, a lot of people can write. You know, I, like what do I have that's special? But when you get into a situation, just a very simple situation of like, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I can help somebody who's not mobile right now. So like my ability to just wash dishes is now this really helpful power. My ability to drive a car safely, my ability to just be around and be reliable is really useful. I feel so good in those moments. And I think that's a really common human trait mm. that a lot of people feel like the world is just progressing and like modernizing and getting more efficient and they're not needed. And you see all over on social media and all people that are like succeeding at skills better than you can. And even just on TikTok, it's just like, well, I, I'm not even the best person who can like uh, knock the lid off of a soda bottle or, you know, like all of these like little skills yeah. that like are just seemingly like everybody can like dance better than you mm -hmm. and lip sync better than you and everything. And like, I know that feeling of just feeling why, why am I here? Because like, I'm just redundant and not, mm -hmm. not special in any way. There is this amazing moment, like, like nurse Penny describes of like just coming upon, upon people in need in an accident, even though she felt like she didn't live up to that necessarily all the ways that she could, but just I'm sure just being there and just having a kind face and just checking on people like is more than a, more than could do or, or, you know, just being around, being present, witnessing. Mm. Um, and I think the lack of being witnessed and just seeing that like somebody sees you and that whatever you're doing is enough leads to a lot of despair with, mm -hmm. with people, not just teens, but everyone, you know? Yeah. But I think it's like extra critical with teens because they've grown up with that through their whole lives now their whole consciousness has been in this era where everything is comparison you know like when i said like comparison is the thief of joy like that's just the problem plaguing everyone mm -hmm. just you're constantly comparing yourself to everyone and it's stealing that joy so all of that to say like moments when you can like be needed and and show somebody something like as a step parent like to just like show someone how to tie their shoes or you know simple things like how to spell a word Mm. I love that. And it feels like it dovetails with caregiving of like, here's this ability that's not super special. It's not world-class. It's just, I can do a simple human task and I'm healthy right now and I can do it for you. Mm. Feels so amazing. You know, it's like, oh, that's, that's why I'm here is to just not be extra super special, but just like be capable, be around, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well said. I, I don't know if there's much more to add to that. You know, I'm looking at a picture of my mother-in-law right now and she would just always say it's all about relationships. And I think my version of that, this little quote that I came up with doing you're going to die after all these years is the meaning of life is each other. Mm. And I believe that that's true for a couple reasons why that connects to the nonprofit and what we do with our work to create a place of belonging and to connect community and remember we're not alone, but I think it also connects to something you're describing in a culture, also social media driven, a outward value. You know, how much can I output to be worthwhile and find belonging and be matched by people out in the world saying, oh, yeah, I like you more, please. I'll keep coming back for more. And how exhausting and depleting that that activity is. Not that it doesn't have its value and doesn't help us create community and find belonging and connectedness, but I've been thinking a lot about a version of what you're describing, which is this chance to return to our presence. And when we care for others, even if it is spelling a word or tying a shoe or sitting at someone's deathbed, what's being asked of us is to be right where we are and how healing is that even for ourselves to get more of that, a chance to be right where we are needed, right where we are reminded that where we are is exactly where we need to be. And granted, that's a little bit dependent on maybe someone else needing us, but it might be the next step close to us learning what it means to just also be with ourselves and find gratitude in that presence, find gratitude in us, paying attention in the moment we're living in rather than this constant endeavor that's totally normal and very human, even animalistic. The idea I think a lot about of our eyes being open, our mouth being ready to consume and the sensory experience of, of going outwards um, that we get a chance when we're with people taking care of others to just be 
you know, and, and when I think about moving home with my mom, how hard that was, I'll never regret it because she did give me that chance to practice mm-hmm. being with her in my hometown and mm-hmm. even finding a good life there because I stopped everything else that supposedly meant the world to me as a 20 yeah. something. Um, and I, and I mean that I'll never regret getting to be with her and, and take care of her in, in the ways I was able to during that year. Um, and learn maybe in the ways I still need it about how I'm valuable just being alive right here. <clears throat> um, and getting that with you now and knowing the listeners here with us too, as weird as it is to think it's a recording they'll listen to, I am speaking to them. I'm speaking to you listeners. Like I often feel the presence of someone out there who needs just this conversation we're having right now mm-hmm. and how you are right where you need to be. And we're right there with you. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Nick. Thanks for that. Really appreciate can it. I, can I ask you something about um, the the interview? Like when Nurse Penny pointed out like the thing that your mom said to you about like, should I do this? And, and you had always interpreted that as a, a denial on your mother's part of like mm-hmm. not being aware of dying. And she, Penny offered this insight of like, she's a mother and she was like, checking take you know considering you was that like a a revelation for you to hear that yeah yeah absolutely i mean you can tell my response to her and my acknowledgement it's authentic you know i'd never heard anybody put it that way i'd never heard anyone know that and say so i think i maybe because of the sort of neediness of my mom in some ways in her life and her being alone and single and and dying alone without a partner and feeling like I needed to kind of somehow probably a bit unhealthily fulfill that role as a caregiver instead of a partner. Um, I think there's a way that I accidentally left her totally helpless at the end of her life and that death happened to her. And to have someone tell me that she chose it while for the first time, really that whole week checking in with me and my sister. Cause she really hadn't talked that whole week at all. She was so quiet. And, um, to have nurse Penny say she was making that choice and getting your permission or checking in with you so that she could let go. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd never heard anybody ever, ever, ever put it that way. And I'm just so, mm. so glad to get that new understanding and kind of integrate that into, into me. I'm, I really do feel so strongly about it. Yeah. Thanks for helping me integrate it even a little more. Yeah. Appreciate you. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks everybody so much for listening. So glad you're here until next time. Bye-bye. 